Let's get your Bibles ready. How many are you ready? You got your Bibles? Now, you need them every week at Heritage because we use the Bible. Now, I had a small, I had a sweet conversation with, you can use your digital devices if you wish. You're waving your phones at me like at the concert. Get your phones out. Spoke with a a young adult this week, and uh, he was telling me about, I hope he's watching, uh, he was telling me about, he goes to church. Oh, I got. I go to church. Oh, I said, oh, that's really good. That's really good. And then I said, you guys open the book? And he said, well, sometimes. I said, well, what are you, what are you doing, you know? What, what else, what do you call that? Now, I would never want to roll anybody under the bus. That's why I don't mention names or places. But the Heritage, we do like the Bible. And uh, so we're, we're going to open it up. Now, so get your Bibles ready. Uh, and we are entering this this uh, this Easter season, and we've we've been calling it we call it why the questions of Easter answered. But I think next year we might call it <laughs> what's the big deal? Because my wife said we're this is the big deal. I thought well that's a perfect title for the series, the big deal. So I thought wow we might just change it next year and call it the big deal. But still we need to frame it and it needs to be it needs to be framed uh, phrased in the form of a question. Raised in the form of a question. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, what's, oh, what is the big deal? There you go. Beep, beep, beep. All right, so this morning, big deal for 200. Are you ready? Why did Jesus die? Now, wait. Now, listen, 9 o'clock. I'm going to ask a series of questions. Most of them are what we call rhetorical because I could feel it that you were some of you were reaching for your six shooter right away. Okay, okay. <laughs> I love this church. Why did Jesus die? Why why do we emphasize that? Why do we talk about it? Why do we sing about it? We do much more than that. We cling to it. We trust in it. We totally and utterly depend upon it. Because we do, this distinguishes Christianity from every form of religion or philosophy. No other religion on the planet worships a crucified man, except one. The idea, listen, you've got to to lean into the crucifixion. Nobody exalts and adores this kind of a religious figure, one that was humiliated and shamed and crushed. Not very inspiring. See, we believe that Jesus Christ came to save us. We believe Jesus Christ came to save us. Is that too long of a sentence to say out loud? I just feel like it's a really good confession. Can we try it together? We believe that Jesus Christ came to save us. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners. We believe that he came to save us and that he died on a cross to do so. His death was the price and you were the purchase. But the question is, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why all of that? Why did he have to die? Well, he did not have to. No one forced Jesus to die. He said himself in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. No one assassinated Jesus. Nor was God compelled by any force or by any reason to send his son. God did not have to send Jesus to save us. He chose to. Everybody say it out loud. He chose to. So the first answer to why did Jesus die is just that. He chose to. But why? What was the reason? What did he accomplish? The answer to this question is found as we lean into our, the, the, how the Bible informs our understanding of the nature of God and the condition of man. To say it shorter, the answer to why did Jesus have to die is because of the nature of, the, the nature of God and the condition of man. You with me? The necessity of Jesus' death, again, a necessity of choice, not by force, can be, under, can be found through understanding that. Meaning this, if the Bible, if God is who the Bible says he is, and man is who the Bible says he is, then the only way to save man was for Jesus to die. Here's why. The Bible reveals the nature of God, reveals his nature. So does creation, but the Bible tells us that creation helps reveal his nature. The Bible is our, the chief revelation of the nature of God. And the Bible affirms, perhaps primarily, if not overwhelmingly, this, God is love. Everybody say it with me, God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it's a good song. You can, little, you can sing it if you don't, okay? But, the, but 1 John 4, 7 and 8 affirms these two powerful claims. Love is from God, and God is love. Love is from Him, and He is love. Not, that, not just that God loves, but that He is love, that love comes from Him. Love originates and finds its definition and source in God himself. So therefore, by the way, love cannot be experienced really, truly apart from him. And love is absolutely never, not ever what you decide it is. Love is what God says it is because it is, how dare we say love is love? How, that is the biggest insult it's blasphemy because love is not just whatever we say it is that's because that's be like saying god is whoever i say he is this is not the subject today whatsoever 
But to define love apart from God is to reduce love or to pervert it entirely. Psalm 86 verse 15 states, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant. Everybody say abundant. Abundant in loving kindness and truth. God's love is abundant. That's a, in case you weren't already aware, not only is that a multisyllabic word, it's a really, really big word, abundant. In the Hebrew, it means to be multiplied by myriads, like, the, like, a, like an exponenter, but like a big, big, long one, okay? This, this means that, that, God, that God's love is abundant, it means take what you understand about love and multiply it by tens of thousands. God's love is abundant. Scripture is replete with references to the love of God. His love cannot be denied. His love cannot be minimized. It would be impossible for you and I to measure his love, and you and I would have a very difficult time trying to exaggerate it. Some of you aren't bad at exaggerating. But you'd have a difficult time exaggerating the love of God precisely because he is love. But there is more. God is also just. <laughs> if, if, we had our, if we had our amenometer out, the, the amenometer went off a lot louder when I said God is love. You want to try it again? God is just. Ah, there we are. Meaning God's nature is also characterized by justice. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, Moses describes God as like this. He is the rock. His, way, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Not just most or even a majority of his ways are just, but all his ways are just. And in fact, all his ways are completely without injustice. It is impossible for God to be unjust. That's why Abraham says in, in, in Genesis 18, verse 25, he, said, he says, well, not the judge of all the earth do right. God is the judge of all the earth. Isaiah 5, 16 says, but behold, the Lord of hosts is exalted by his justice. The holy God is distinguished by his righteousness. The justice of God, this characteristic, exalts him. God is exalted by this trait, his justice. Isaiah 61, verse 8, For I, the Lord, listen, love justice. Justice is an expression of the very heart of God. God is love. God is just. <laughs> now you're ready for it. God is both. These attributes, love and justice, these are, they're, not, they're not duking it out in contrast with one another. This is, God is, I don't think anybody really feels this way, but let me just say it. God is God does not suffer from some sort of personality disorder. 
he is not, and I don't mean dis- disrespect, he, is, he, doesn't, he doesn't go into to manic and then depressive states. He's not, he's not in a one mood one day and another mood another day. God's love and his justice are not like two sides of a coin. You never know which God you're going to get. That's nonsense. No, these, like God, th- these are expressions of the very nature of God. They operate in concert with one another. They are, they are not in discord. They are in perfect harmony. And they make sense. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So right right at the throne of God, the, the foundation and the expression of his throne are these two attributes working concurrently, simultaneously, in harmony. Love and justice. Psalm 33 verse 5 says this, He loves righteousness and justice. He loves it. He loves justice. And then think about this. Here's a little theology for us. We know if you've spent any time reading the the law, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The law is about the law and the justice of God. And 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 a great deal of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, the major, which is the, the larger books, and the minor prophets, which are the smaller books, Much of those, especially the smaller books, are full of challenges about justice. Really, the issue uh, that was in the the, the burr and the craw of these prophets was the injustice that was happening. So the law and the prophets are hammering on justice, justice, justice. But Jesus said that if we loved our neighbor as ourself, we would fulfill the law and the prophets. So we see that the same texts emphasize justice and love at the same time. The Bible clearly and overwhelmingly and repeatedly reveals that the, the nature of God is both love and justice. It's the nature of God. He is, he is, he is more love than you can ma- imagine or measure, and he is absolutely perfectly and without, he is perfectly just and without injustice. There's God. The condition of man, the Bible describes man as being made in the image of God. You are God's crowning creation. And and a little bit of theological aside, systematically just speaking here, uh, in terms of anthropology and these kinds of things. Friends, be be careful. Listen, I have a dog. I like my dog most of the time. Sometimes I, I lean more toward being really affectionate about my dog, right? I, in other words, I like animals. Yay, animals. But be very careful throughout history. It, it, it masks itself as uh, something that it is not. Throughout history, when philosophies began to exalt the created world above the crowning creation, be suspect. Be very suspect when people start. When, in other words, when people start attributing certain rights to animals that, to make them somehow equivalent with human beings, I realize that sounds really great, especially if you mix a little sad music behind it. But there are. But that is. But that is theologically a big problem because the next step is to dehumanize humanity. The next step is when the ethicists at Princeton say that a healthy puppy has more rights than a sick baby. 
already been, it's already been asserted, it's already been argued, past tense. So you've got to embrace this. You are made in the image of God. Your puppy is not. I know, some of you are going to be like, Gah, I'm out of here. Your cat is made in the image of something else. Blap, 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 losers, people not follow, not follow. <laughs> guy, guy holding his cat, what? You are made in the image of God. You are God's crowning creation. You are the apple of his eye. You are God's, you, you are God's uh, that, that French thing, uh, uh, piece of resistance. <laughs> it's better when you don't think your own self is funny. Said that out loud. That was really funny. Uh, anyway, you're you're made in the image of God. You are a big deal. And from unless I know, I understand who you're. You're sitting next to somebody you're a little irritated with today. That I'm not talking about personality types and how you get along. I'm talking about your design, your blueprint. You were made as the mirror reflection of Almighty God. Do not underestimate what it means to bear the imprint, the image of God. You didn't, you didn't design it. You didn't draw it. So don't be like, dig me. No. You sh- it should be dig him. You were, it is an ex- you should worship. Listen, you need to understand who you are because and when you understand who you are, you begin to understand whose you are. If you were made in the image of God, that means there was an impression stamped upon you that says no matter how much of an attitude you have, God bless you, you are not your own. You are not your own. You are not your own idea. You are not your own making. You didn't design yourself. You are a steward of you, not an owner of you. Genesis 126. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. But the Bible also teaches this about man. That man is fallen and under sin. Meaning that mankind has sinned and broken the just laws of God. All of us have. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is moral rebellion. It is the rejection of the ways and will of God. You can be nice, you can smile, you can wear bright colors and still be in sin. You do not have to have a furrowed brow to be in sin. You can sin and smile about it. It is simply a rejection of the ways and will of God. And mankind as a whole has done so. The scripture declares that our sin brings our death. The Bible describes that death as hell. 
Remember, we're answering the question, why did Jesus die? The answer is found in the nature of God and the condition of man. We're still in the condition of man. We have man made as the crowning, the creation of God in his image, man who has sinned, and, and, as, and because of that sin, there's a, the consequence is death, and the Bible describes that death not as vapid, dark, emptiness ceasing to be, but as, a, as hell. Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 and 50. Jesus said, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we want to be very cautious here about whenever we talk about hell, we want to make sure that it never is accompanied by chest thumping. It should, we should break under the weight of this truth. If you ever say, oh, you know, hell, I'm right. If it ever promote hell should, I don't know where it would come from, but I, well, I do. But I, would, I don't know how it can happen that the idea of a discussion of hell could actually inflate anyone's pride. It's truth that should break us. Broken, first of all, for our own sin, and broken, secondly, for anybody else who's still trapped there. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, He will punish those who do not, do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Friends, too often, sin is treated casually and is given margin for influence in our lives because people don't fully consider the reality of hell. But sin is not just an accumulation of misdeeds. It's not just, there is, <laughs> there is a list. Now, thank God we'll talk about it next week, but that list has been hammered to the cross and blotted out. But, the, but sin is not just a list of misdeeds. It is, the Bible describes it as an actual power, a spiritual power. It's not just something that you do. It is something that you are under. It is a dominion. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 actually says that we are, quote, are all under sin, or we were all under sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, this is the Apostle Paul explained this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your, trust, in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, there's more to say, but just as we, uh, we pull these pieces of truth together, you can see the problem. On one hand, you have man made in the image of God, beloved and designed for fellowship with God, who also has sinned against God and fallen short and who remains under the dominion of sin and whose sin earns them eternal death. And then on the other hand, you have a God of infinite love and perfect justice. How can justice be satisfied and love be applied? How can this problem be solved? The solution, according to the Bible, is the cross. 
God's justice will be met by his love. And his love will satisfy justice on the cross. Because the cross is the intersection. Would you all say that with me? The intersection. The cross is the intersection of God's love and his justice. Why did Jesus die? Because God loved you too much to let you die in the penalty of your sin. The most famous passage in the Bible explains why Jesus died. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. Love is why. Love was the motive and the cause. The cross is motivated by love. It is caused by love. And it springs out from the love of God for you. Jesus died for you because of love. Why did Jesus die? Because God loves you. The cross is the intersection of God's love and his justice. The cross is justice. The cross is not only evidence of the greatness of God's love for you, but the severity and the reality of sin itself. Friends, sin is real. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. It's not an illusion. Sin made the cross necessary. Listen, the depravity, the violence, the brutality, and the perversion of mankind has left the ledger so far in the red that one cannot in any sane way argue that man man is basically good and things aren't that bad. Man is basically good as long as he doesn't feel threatened. Man is basically good as long as everything's going his way. Give him a couple of problems and he will destroy anyone in his way. And we've proven it. The history of the world proves that this, that this thing, the ledger's way in the red. If, if somehow this God that we talked about was not indignant and angered by all of this, then he would be an acquiescent accomplice to the injustice and the deception and the violence in our world. If God were unbothered by it, if God said, oh, it's no big deal, I'm going to overlook it all, then he would be an accomplice to it. If Detective Saul Wasser were in the room today, I'd ask him, how, how would you treat somebody who was, a, who was totally aware of a crime, sit there looking at it, and didn't do anything about it? I think they call that an accomplice in some way, at least an acquiescent one. But God is not. He is not unbothered. He is deeply grieved. He is more moved than you and I can measure about the, about the wounding and the depravity and the brokenness of humanity. And he had to do something about it. That The injustice had to be righted. The, what was wrong had to be made right. Somebody had to do something. And God intervened on the cross. Look at the cross and understand how God feels about sin and you. See, man could not make up or pay for his own sin. Sin is our debt. Sin is our problem. We are the ones who sinned. So although we aren't able to solve it, it is our problem. Right? But God is the one who is sinned against. 
Only he can forgive. Only he is perfect. Only he is pure. Only he can settle the account. So the problem is, we owe the debt, but only God can pay it. We owe the debt, only God can pay it. So that's the problem. Heaven had a solution, and the solution is the cross. The solution, the only solution, was for God to become man. In Jesus, God became fully man in order to fully redeem man. And the blood has never lost its power. God himself became man, and he died for our sins. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, lived perfectly and righteously and gave his perfect life on the cross to become a perfect sacrifice, to make a perfect payment for you and me, perfectly and forever. Jesus died not just for you, but as you. He died your death. He paid your price. He took it upon himself. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from not only from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. You have been delivered. You have been rescued. You have been forgiven. Sin's, sin's record is deleted, and sin's power is canceled. Because he loves you. Understand this. Jesus Christ died for you because God loves you. George Herbert Morrison wrote this. The cross was not needed and included because of God's unwillingness to pardon. Nowhere in the New Testament is the cross conceived as something that turns an unwilling God into a willing one. The the cross is not the cause of God's love. It is the consequence. It It is not the spring of love. It is the outflow. God does not ask man for atoning sacrifice. He gives it. And he gives it because he loves the world and wills that not any man should perish. It is because God is passionately eager to forgive that God sent his son to die. The reason Jesus died on the cross is because God loves you too much to let you die in your sin. We close with these four verses. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world. Why did Jesus die? Because God loves you. Let me ask you to stand together as we close this morning. Please bow your heads as we close in prayer. I'd like, I, I, I want to challenge you very specifically this morning. I suppose there are there are perhaps only two really real ways we can respond to the cross today. One of them is repentance. The other is gratitude. Gratitude will always follow repentance. But right now, this morning, you're, 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 you, you will fall into one of those two categories primarily. 
if you don't know, if you don't know this morning for, for a certainty that you have in your own heart believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and with your mouth and with your life literally publicly declared, confessed that you believe God raised him from the dead. In other words, if you have not, if you have not personally, sincerely, like you know you have, if you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you hear this message about the cross and sin and you, haven't, and, you, and you haven't said, yes, Jesus Christ died for my sin. That was my sin that he died for, my sin that was paid for, my sin that has been covered, and now my sin that is gone. Then you, if, you haven't, if that's not your confession, you don't know that you are saved, you need to repent today. You need to repent and say, Lord, I turn away from my sin and myself, and I surrender to Jesus Christ today all the way. That's the other thing about repentance. Not only does no one ever regret it, there's no such thing as like uh, partial. You turn from sin and turn to Christ. If this were my last opportunity to talk to you on the face of this earth today, I would say this. Is there anybody here this morning who need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior? I need to repent this morning. I need to turn to Jesus. I need to turn to him and trust in Christ as my Savior today. There's no condemnation and there's no shame. There's joy that awaits you. But you need. But I want to challenge you. You must today. If you're hearing this word, you're accountable to it. Your head's bowed across this house. I want, I want to challenge you right now. Today you need to make that confession. You need to surrender to Jesus Christ and make him your Lord and your Savior. Something I remember, I remember, you say, how do I know? You know. I remember very clearly, six, seven years old, lifting my hand, walking down to a front of a room, tears falling down my face. But I knew I wanted Jesus to come and live in my heart. I knew there was something that hadn't, that I hadn't received yet. Something, a, a transaction I hadn't had with heaven. But I want to tell you right now this morning, you can do that today. Do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior today. You can leave here differently. If today you need to repent and trust in Christ, you can do it right now. Would you lift your hand and say, Dad, that's me today. Today I need to be saved. Today I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. It's a bold statement, but you'll never regret it. Lift your hand right where you are, and we'll pray for you today before we leave. The other thing is this. Every single one of us, if you have repented and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your only response to the message of the cross is unimaginable, overflowing gratitude. There shouldn't be anybody who leaves this place today in a, with a, in a bad mood. You, it's impossible. All you can do is overflow your mouth. shouldn't be able to do anything else but say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not spending eternity in hell. Thank you, Jesus. The sin doesn't have power over me. Thank you, Jesus. Sin is not my master. Thank you, Jesus. I live in freedom. Thank you, Jesus, for abundant life. Thank you, Jesus, for the power of the blood of Jesus. Can we give the Lord thanks across the room today? Let's do it right now.